These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother Isaac came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Rebecca and Isaac sitting in a tree. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. As they say over the pond, snogging. First comes love, first, next comes marriage, then comes baby and a baby carriage. I think somebody wrote that ridiculous rhyme at some point to like tell us this is what, this is how it's supposed to work. And then like all, most all the good things, somebody took it and twisted it and made it something to torment middle school kids with for all the ages. But we're at this part of the story where this promise that God made to Abraham is now being carried out in his offspring. It's now being carrying out, carried out in Isaac, the chosen son. And now Isaac has a wife. We talked about that last week, Rebecca. God uh, used all these circumstances and events to bring Rebecca to Isaac, and they are now married, and they're about to have a child that's going to carry on the offspring, carry on the promise. God promised to work through this family and he's gonna work through this family to bring a blessing to all the families all over the nation, all over the, all over the planet. And so you're, if you're following along, you're like, this, this is how it's supposed to work. This is supposed to be like this ideal. God's got this plan. He's working this plan. He's blessing this family. And then as soon as you see Rebecca get pregnant, first of all, there's, a, there's another struggle. She's, she's not able to get pregnant, but she prays and Jacob prays, Isaac prays, and then she's, She's able to conceive, and you think, oh, think God's working this plan out. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. And then she's got these twins. And even in the womb, the twins are fighting with each other. 
Some of you guys are having a hard time keeping your kids from fighting each other right now. Just think about this. It probably didn't start in the womb. Probably didn't start back then where they're elbowing each other for the prime space in there. Like, this is crazy. Like, even in the womb, she's, she's in a lot of pain because they're struggling. This word means a severe struggle. It means they're trying to crush each other. And so she inquires of the Lord, what's wrong? Like, this is, this is your plan, right? This is what you're supposed to be doing. This is, this is what we're supposed to be doing. What's wrong? Why is this going on? And God says, oh, there's two nations in your womb. You, you, there's, there's a whole different plan being, being executed here that you don't really even know about. There's two nations, and there's one that's going to come out, and he's going to be stronger than the other one, but the, the older one's going to end up serving the younger one. There's strife as a part of this. And it's just a reminder that I think I almost need it every day. I know we need it all the time, maybe even weekly. We need this reminder that even when you're being blessed by God, even when, when you're right where God wants you to be, sometimes it can be very difficult. Even when you're exactly where you're supposed to be following Jesus, you can have strife and you can have turmoil and you can have difficulty and you can have trials and you can have tribulations. All that's a part of it sometimes. And so even if you're like, man, I'm just following, I'm just being obedient, I'm just executing the plan that God has for my life, and you go, man, why is this so difficult? Just being hopefully encouraged that this is like part of the way this works sometimes. Just we need that reminder. It's not always going to be easy. It's going to be difficult from time to time. And so you have this story of these two boys born, these two twins, and Esau is the firstborn. And he comes out, and then Jacob comes out second. He's the secondborn twin, but he's he's grasping his heel. He's got his he's grabbing a hold of his heels. He's coming out of the womb. It's like this picture of him like trying to get that position, trying to, even as an infant, like that's the picture that we, we see. He's given this name Jacob, which later kind of, kind of became known as someone who grasps at the heel, someone who trips you up, someone who's a deceiver. And you have this really, really interesting story here of how God is working out his plan and he's bringing about his blessing and he's carrying on this line through Abraham to Isaac and now he's gonna do this through Jacob. And so they, they're, they're growing up, and they're, they're, they, they, they're two totally different boys. You know, same, same mom, same dad, but you, can, you have kids, and they're, they're totally different. These are two totally different boys. Esau's an outdoorsman. He's a hunter. Jacob likes to stay in the tent. He likes to stay close to his mom. I mean, there's these two different paths that they're on, but there's this decree. There's this oracle that God had declared that, yeah, the blessing is going to be passed down through the younger son. The blessing's going to be passed down through Jacob. The older will serve the younger. And so that prophecy, that oracle, that prediction that God made, that decree that he made begins to play out pretty early in the story. And so we see this really, we see both boys kind of exhibiting their character and who they are because Esau's been out hunting He's been hunting all day. He's had a rough day out in the field hunting, and he comes in, and he's starving. He's just, he's just ready, to, ready to eat. He wants to eat something now. And Jacob kind of had, had planned it. It looks like he planned this behind the scenes. He's, he's made up some stew. And Esau comes in and says, man, give me some of that. Give me some of that lentil stew, this red stew. The red guy asked for the red stew. Like, give me some of that. And Jacob says, yeah, I'll give you some of that, but you've got you to sell me your birthright. 
The birthright's a big deal. We don't, we don't necessarily understand that in our culture. In that culture, the firstborn son in a family was everything. He was the family. He was carrying it on. He was getting the majority, almost the whole inheritance. Everything would be, would, would be carried through the firstborn son in a family. You, you have that firstborn son, and it's all, everything kind of points to him. And so the birthright, to sell it, to give it away, I mean, that's a huge deal. Because this is not, like, it's, it's just hard for us to understand this, because this is not like we would do it, just equally divided among the kids. This is, you know, the firstborn gets everything. He gets the blessing. He gets the inheritance. He's got the birthright because he's the firstborn. Even in a twin situation, he came out first. And so Jacob says, give me your birthright. Sell it to me. I'll give you some of this stew. Give me your birthright. And Esau looks at this and he's like, what good is that birthright to me? I'm going to die. I'm so hungry. We've all said that before. I'm starving. I haven't eaten all day. So what good is that? Like Esau's the first guy ever to basically say YOLO. You know this phrase? Such a wonderful phrase that millennials have given to us. And I like millennials. But this phrase like you only live once. What? No, the, the, the truth is that you only live for eternity. You only live forever. And so what you do actually matters. And Esau's looking at this like, I'm going to die. What, what, good is, what good is next week? Or what is good is it 10 years from now to me right now? I'm starving. I need food right now. And so he sells his birthright. He trades it for a bowl of stew. He trades it for one single meal. Gives away his blessing. Gives away his status in the family. Gives away uh, all the inheritance. He gives all that away for a meal. To, to, to satisfy him in the moment. Genesis tells us that after he ate, he got up and, and just walked away. He didn't, he didn't care. It says that he despised his birthright. He just, no big deal. I don't need that anyway. I just needed a bowl of soup, bowl of stew. And so, as we're looking at this story and as we see these events play out, I just want us, I want us to use it as a warning. I wanted to use it as a reminder to us today that like there's a slippery slope that we can jump on or slide down or whatever, like that when we start looking at things from the wrong perspective. And what Esau does in this moment is he just completely thinks only of the here and the now, what he needs right then, what will satisfy him right then. And he, he, he misses the eternal. He misses the big picture. He misses the value of everything that he's giving, giving away for that moment. And here's what it is. It's a warning that we should be careful not to forfeit the eternal in favor of the temporal. We need to like look at the story and I think we need to embrace this and like that's what we need to grab a hold of. We need to be careful that we are not forfeiting the eternal, giving up the eternal in favor of the temporal. And that the wording of that statement seems pretty harsh. It seems like it's pretty elevated. Like all he did was sell his birthright. But like when you look at the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews looks back at these men of faith in chapter 11 and, and just like extols them for their faith. And then in chapter 12, 
the writer of Hebrews mentions Esau and gives us a little bit more light into what Esau did there. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, it says, see to it, basically, he's saying, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Look at what the writer says. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And we're going to talk about that story next week. But when he decided, no, oh man, I made a mistake. I need to go get the birthright back. I need to get the blessing back. No, there was no chance for that. He forfeited this great blessing of God for the temporary satisfaction of the meal at hand because he was hungry. And for us to look at the story and go, man, let's don't forfeit the eternal in favor of the temporal. Let's make sure that we're not trading what's really most valuable for something that seems valuable but will only satisfy us for a moment. It will only satisfy us for a few moments. It only satisfies, it makes some promises that it can't really deliver. And man, that's always a temptation for us. Here's the interesting thing about that to me is that I think sometimes what we do is we hide these decisions behind another decision. We like, we put a mask on these decisions and the mask looks like this. In our culture, in our day, in our society, we talk about making decisions between what's good and what's best all the time. Because we got all kinds of things that we can be involved in and all kinds of ways to spend our time and all kinds of ways to spend our money and all kinds of things to, to do with our, our kids and all these different decisions are in front of us all the time. And so what we end up doing is going, man, this is a good thing, and this is a good thing, and this is a good thing, and to be involved in that's a good thing, and all these things are good things. And so we start thinking of it only in those terms of what's good and what's best. How do I, okay, maybe we can't do the good thing because we want to do the best thing, but they're all good things. Sometimes those decisions are exactly what they are. There's just some good things, and we're going to only have time to do what's really the, the best thing. But sometimes I think we're putting that mask on the real decision, and that is what is eternal in value? versus what is temporal. I think it plays out in every area of our lives. It plays out in how we, how we spend our time. That, that's probably our most precious resource. So how we spend our time, what we put on the calendar and what we don't, what we schedule in advance and what we don't, all the ways that we spend our time, are we giving them to things that are eternal in value or are we settling for those things that are temporal, that are just like, that, that'll satisfy me for the moment. That'll, That'll please me in that moment, but like we need to kind of give ourselves this new filter, this different filter, this different lens of where to look at the world and, and evaluate how we use our time, to evaluate how we use our money, to evaluate how we parent our kids, to evaluate all those different kinds of things in this, with this lens. Is this eternal in value or is this temporal? Is this gonna really, really last? Is this gonna, is this gonna make an eternal difference in my life, in the life of the people around me, in my relationships, in my children? Or is this gonna, is this just gonna fade? This is just something that we just gave ourselves to because it seemed like everybody else was doing it. It seemed like a good idea at the time. When I first started out in ministry, I remember one of the biggest things that you would talk about in youth ministry back then was this idea that students were coming to church when they were in grade school and then they were in middle school and they were in high school and then they would go to college and all the students were leaving the church when they were in college. I mean, we spent a lot of time, when I was in youth ministry back in those days, we spent all this time trying to figure out why are the kids leaving? Why are they leaving our churches? Why are they, why are they not? When they go to college, why do they stop? 
And man, we, we looked at that from every single angle that we thought you could look at that. Like, well, maybe the youth programming needs to be changed. Maybe the youth focus needs to be changed. Maybe we need to do this for the youth instead on Wednesday nights. Maybe we do all these different kinds of things so that they won't leave their faith. Maybe we need to give more apologetics and more defense of their faith so that they really, when they go to college and it's tested, maybe they'll understand it. And then I became a parent. It's amazing how many theories you have before you become a parent about parenting. And then you become a parent and you're like, oh man, I, I, oh, I, I'm always wrong. Okay, I get it now, I'm always wrong. I became a parent and here's, what I, here's, here's the question that I began to ask. Am I, as the parent, as, as the leader of the family, am I making sure that my kids understand the value of being a part of the body of God? Am I, am I giving that to my kids as such a high value that they understand that this is something we, we are the church and so the church gathers and we gather with the church? It's just a different lens. I, guys, I'm not giving you rules. I'm not giving you law today. Please don't hear me giving you law that you gotta be here at every single thing that we do or you're not, no. I'm just saying, would you consider that filter? Would you consider like, hey, this event, this activity, is it eternal in focus or is it temporal? Will it, will it help my kids understand the value that I say that I give to this thing that we're doing, that we are, that's called the church? Will it help my kids in that? I mean, it's not just that. It's, it's, it's every area of our life to apply this filter to it. Like, here's, here's the money that God has given me, the resources that God has given me. And so how do I take that, that lens and apply it to that? How, how I spend my money, how I use my money, what I, I obtain with my money, is it lending towards the eternal? Or is it, or is it temporal? Just going to... I mean, you, you can do that with your, with your resources. You can grab all the things you want. He who dies with the most toys wins, right? You can just get all the toys and all the things and just say, that's what I'm doing. And you can live for the moment. YOLO with your resources. Or you can do what I've seen you guys do since we, like, we, we talk about as elders all the time about how you guys this body at Crosspoint overall as a whole. I mean, it's, it's so encouraging and challenging to us to watch you guys that have resources and you live below what you could. You live below your means so that you can be positioned to be generous and to give, to support the things that really matter, to support the things that are eternal. That's just, that's a totally different perspective. It's a totally different lens. Oh, I could do this with all my resources, but I don't have to because I could leverage these resources for the kingdom. And you guys, you have done that. Like this church is blessed because you have done that. It's just this lens that we, we look through. Esau didn't have the lens on. Like he, he didn't look through the right lens. He, he didn't see this the right way. He didn't see the blessing on the other side. He didn't see the value of it. Didn't see the worth of the birthright. And I was thinking about this and like, this doesn't really make sense in our culture. Because I, I mean, I don't know if you eat lentil stew. I don't, I don't eat, I don't think I've eaten lentil stew. And if I did, I don't want to do it again. Like it just doesn't even sound good. But I thought about this because I thought, like there's, there's something else that would help us understand this, or at least help, help me understand this. And it's, um, 
It's this little thing called Denty Moore Beef Stew. Nobody? Nobody's a fan. Denty Moore Beef Stew. Yeah. You can put that, like, just in case you can't see this, I want you to make sure you see, like, what I'm talking about. Denty Moore Beef Stew. Now, this stuff right here is amazing. I'm not, I'm not kidding, y'all. This is amazing, because it says right here in real big letters, no preservatives. And all of a sudden, it's like there's magic in this can. Because there's beef and potatoes and carrots in here, and there's no preservatives. And I can just open this up right now, and I can put it in a bowl, and it'll come out in the shape of this can, which is so awesome. And then you got to mash it down and stuff, and then heat it up, and then I'm eating beef stew in like two minutes. No preservatives. And I used to love this stuff, man. I used to eat this all the time. I'm always trying to get my kids to eat it because they got little single servings now. I mean, this is for sharing right here. And this is like when you're a real friend, you know, hey, come on over. I'm opening up a can of beef stew. But I used to eat this all the time. This is one of my favorite meals when I was a teenager. Then I got married, and I, I don't, yeah, I don't have to eat this that much. So here's what I want you to do with this. I want you to... I want you to put on these lenses and I want you to think, what is this? Is this eternal? Is this going to have eternal, long-lasting value in my life? Or is this denty more beef stew? It's going to satisfy me for once. And it's going to just fade away. I'm going to have to go back to the store and get some more. Is this eternal? Go to the grocery store when you go in the grocery store and walk down that aisle and see this. And I want you to just stop and think, oh man, yep. Eternal versus temporal. What's going to really matter? What's going to really last? Now, that may determine how you shop and how you buy groceries, but like I want it to be a big picture thing. How we spend our time, how we spend our resources, how we parent our children, how we view our relationships. Is it eternal or is it just beef stew? Here for a second, a little bit of pleasure, a little bit of satisfaction, and then completely gone. I don't want you to misunderstand what we're talking about. It's not like God is saying you shouldn't value these things. What he's saying is value the right things. In some ways, it is kind of a a good versus best type of thing. Because some of the things that we might give up, some of the things that we might turn away from are actually pretty good things. But they're not eternal things. God doesn't have a problem with our, our values. Like in this situation, we see that Esau made a horrible trade. This is the worst trade you could possibly make. For a bowl of stew, he gave away his birthright, the inheritance, the rights that come with being the firstborn. He gave it away for a bowl of stew. It's ridiculous. It's a horrible trade. Um, some of you like the Babylon Bee, that satire, Christian satire thing. And I saw this week that they said that research has, has just shown us that uh, it's, it's likely Esau actually traded his birthright for a Chick-fil-A spicy chicken sandwich instead of beef stew. And so they were trying to help us make sense of it. Maybe he didn't trade down after all. No, we know he traded down. We know this was a complete horrible decision on his part. But when God says, put the lens on and look through everything and, and choose the eternal over the temporal, you're always trading up. You're always going to come out ahead in those trades. And I need you to go to the bank for that. I need you to, to bank on that promise that God says when you, when you lay down your life, when you 
take up your cross and you follow me. You die to yourself. You sacrifice these things in light of the eternal. Guess what? You're always trading up. Our students spend their spring break. We encourage our, our students to spend their spring break serving refugees in Fort Worth at this thing called Launchbox. We do that, we've done that four years in a row, five years maybe. Or this will be the fifth. Like we do that every single spring break. And one of the things I love telling the students every single time they show up, we have like all these churches that show up for a week of serving refugees and sharing the gospel of refugees in Fort Worth for spring break. And I always tell them, guys, this week, what you did is you traded up. You got friends that are doing all kinds of cool stuff and it's gonna be all over Instagram. It's gonna be all, like all the fun stuff that they're doing. And here you are over here serving refugees and you're playing with kill, children that need to hear the gospel and you're loving on them. And you're spending your spring break, your week off from school when it's, the weather's starting to get better again. Like you're spending it over here and it may seem like a huge sacrifice that you made, but it's not. You trade it up. When you invest in the things that are eternal, Instead of the things that are temporal, you trade up. And I'm not, I'm not saying that a family vacation during spring break is bad or wrong. I'm just saying put the lens on and let that be a filter. Not law, not rules, just, hey, what's the best? Like, what's the eternal thing that I can spend my time and energy on? When students go serve over spring break, they're trading up. C.S. Lewis talks about our desires and his essay called The Weight of Glory. I think it really helps us talk about this idea of trading up. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Isn't that true for us? We're too easily pleased. We, we settle for what's less than God's best for us all the time because we choose and pursue the temporal pleasures of the world instead of the eternal things that Jesus offers us. And so our desires aren't wrong. It's just that we're settling and trading down all the time. And so Esau gives us this warning. And don't, don't forfeit the eternal in favor of the temporal. So what does that look like? How, how, do, we, how do we change that into some positive instructions, some positive like, encouragement for us? Like, that's just a warning, but we've got to replace on the other side of the warning, we've got to figure out how to live this out, how to, how, how to do this. And so let me, just, let me just talk about that for a second. The, the idea here is, that, here is that we would live for the eternal. If we put the lens on and we would choose to pursue and to focus on things that are of eternal value in all the areas of our life. We would live for the eternal. So what does that look like? Well, this story doesn't tell us that, but I wanna have this positive encouragement for us. And so I wanna look at three different passages that kind of give us a picture of what that looks like. Colossians 3, one through two. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So this kind of gives some framework to the filter. What does it look like? Things that are above, things over the earth. Things that are eternal, things that are temporal. There's the instruction that Paul gives us to the church in Colossae, like focus on the things 
that have value, that have eternal value, that are up from above. So what does that look like? How does that play out? Well, Jesus said it this way, Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here's, here's a little bit of some feet to this. It's okay to store up for yourself treasure. Just do it in the right way, in the right place. When you invest in the kingdom, when you invest in eternal things, with your time, your resources, your talents, your abilities, your relationships, your parenting, all of it, here's what you're doing. You're storing up treasure in a place where nothing can destroy it in heaven. And so don't store up, don't, don't give yourself to the temple, don't store up treasure for yourself here on earth because it'll be gone, it'll be, it'll, it'll be eaten, it'll, it'll rust, it'll decay. So invest in the eternal. In this next passage, I think it really gives us some practical instruction here. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. I want you to look at this. This may be one that you want to highlight and really walk through with your community group on how this looks like, what this looks like. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, he says, the end of all things is at hand. So this, right at the beginning, he says, in view of eternity, look at everything from eternal perspective because this is not going to last what's here and now. So with that in mind, here's how you should live. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be diligent. Be focused on prayer. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Give yourself to each other. Love one another. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So be hospitable. Be welcoming. As each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. In light of eternity, serve one another. Serve the body. Get involved in this thing. That's what matters. That's what eternal investment, living for the eternal looks like. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So here's the filter. Does this bring glory to Christ or not? Everything I do, how I love, how I serve, how I engage, how I view relationships, how I view my time, my money, my resources, everything. I, I do it all for his glory. That's an eternal investment. That's leaning towards the eternal. Everything I do is for his glory. So don't forfeit the eternal for the temporary. Instead, live for the eternal. Live with that in your mind. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven by focusing and investing in God's kingdom in every area of your life. I think that's, I think that's the main thing that we can get out of this passage. I think that's one of the main challenges for us as we leave here to kind of take that home with the story of Esau trading his birthright. But there's something else I want to talk about here. I want to talk about this, this, this weird part of the story that, if we're really honest, doesn't make sense to a lot of us. And it's this, when Rebecca goes to inquire, like, why are these children fighting inside me? She look, God answers and says, oh, because, well, there's two nations here, and the, the older's going to be stronger, but he's going to come out and he's going to serve the younger one. And if we're really honest, that part of the story just doesn't make any sense at all. 
If you just stop and think about Esau versus Jacob and God choosing one of them to bring his blessing through, it doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, Esau is the firstborn. Esau is stronger. Esau's a man's man. He goes out and hunts. Like he's, he's more admirable than Jacob. Jacob's kind of a mama's boy. Let's just be honest. He's a mama's boy. Isaac loves Esau because he likes to eat that food when he brings back a, a, a deer. Rebecca loves Jacob. He stays in the tent and helps her cook, stuff like this. It, on the surface, Esau looks more admirable. I mean, guys, he's redheaded. What else do you need? <laughs> and he's hairy. So we got a lot of red hair. That's really cool. I'm very jealous of hairy redheads. So I, just on the surface, we look at this and you go, man, if anybody deserves the birthright in the story, Esau. He's already the firstborn. Why you got to go around the system, God? If anybody deserves this blessing, it's Esau. But what happened here was just playing out what God said was going to happen all along. So why doesn't this make sense to us? Why would we look at this and go, if anybody deserves a blessing, it's Esau, not Jacob. Why does this have to go down this way? Well, here's, here's something just to make you think a little bit. When we look at this story and we go, this doesn't make sense. If anybody deserves the blessing, it's Esau. I think what we've done is we've walked away from the gospel. What we've done is we've forgotten. We go into default mode, and our default mode is not gospel most of the time. The gospel reminds us over and over and over and over again that none of us deserve this. It doesn't matter what Jacob does. It doesn't matter what Esau does. Neither one of them deserve God's blessing. And neither do you or neither do I. None of us do. But our default mode is to go, no, 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 there's got to be a way to earn this. There's got to be a way that if I do enough good things, I should get the blessing of God. And that is a path that's not biblical. That's a path in our minds that we go down all the time. I go down all the time that is not gospel-focused and gospel-true. It's a path that leads to where Jonah was sitting on that cliff and he was looking over the city of Nineveh and he was mad at God because God wasn't destroying the Ninevites. Why? Because Jonah thought he deserved God's grace and the Ninevites didn't. He thought he had done something to earn their, God's favor by the way he lived his life and he thought he deserved it more than they did so God should destroy them. It's not the path you want to be on. It's the path of the other brother in the story of the prodigal son. You know that story, the prodigal son, like he, he takes his, he's a second born, so he says, dad, just give me the little bit of my inheritance now and I'm leaving, I'm out of here. He basically says, dad, I wish you were dead, go ahead and give me my money, I'm gone. And he goes and just wastes it, he goes and squanders it, he ends up in a pigsty, feeding pigs. And he comes to his senses and he comes back to the father and the father's been waiting for him and he comes back and he confesses and he repents and he, man, I was so wrong and his father forgives him slaughters the fatted calf and throws this huge party to welcome him back in the, into the family. And that's where the story should end, but it doesn't because there's this other brother, this elder brother who's never left, who's never betrayed him, who stayed faithful all this time. And he's outside the party, angry at his father. He says, I'm not coming in there because the, my younger brother doesn't deserve it. You're welcoming back to the family. He doesn't deserve it. He doesn't earn it. And what he thinks somehow in his head, he thinks he has earned it by his faithfulness. He's earned it by 
all the things he's done. He deserves the favor. And that's not gospel. Man, there's younger brothers and elder brothers in, in the midst of any group of people all the time. And if you're an elder brother and, man, you, you, you know it and you struggle with it, let me recommend a book to you. It's, the, it's called Prodigal God by Tim Keller. And it just takes that story and shows all the sides of it. Let me give you a little, little taste of it here. It says, you can avoid Jesus as Savior by keeping all the moral laws. If you do that, guess what? You have rights. God owes you answered prayers and a good life and a ticket to heaven when you die. You don't need a Savior who pardons you by free grace, for you are your own Savior. You understand this? And you look at the story and you go, why does God do this this way? Why does God choose Jacob, the younger, over Esau to carry out his blessing? I think there's a lot of reasons, ways you can answer that question, but one of the ways is I think God is reminding us that we're not saved by works. It, we need that reminder all the time because our default mode is to think we're earning this, we're doing something, I'm going to, yeah. No, no, no. We're not saved by works. That's not gospel. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for the, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. We are not saved by our works. If you look at the story and you go, man, Esau deserves it. I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. No, none of this should make sense. God decides to save us and to rescue us even though none of us deserve it. None of us can earn it. None of us can be good enough and think, yeah, I've helped God out in this whole thing. No, we were desperately, hopelessly lost in a pit. We're not saved by anything that we do. And the story, looking at this, and you go, man, I don't know. Uh, yeah. yeah, we shouldn't know why he saved us. We should be like, I can't believe it. I did nothing. I offered him nothing. And he rescued me anyway. We're not saved by works. We're saved by God's grace. It's grace alone. He, he chooses to save us, that he rescues us. He reaches out, even though we had rebelled and turned our backs on him and ran far away from him, and we did nothing, nothing, nothing to earn it or deserve it. He rescued us. He saved us in spite of us. And if you think like me sometimes that, oh, yeah, God, God saved me because he knew he needed me on the team, it's not gospel. Push away from that and remind yourself of the truth that you and I don't deserve any of this, but God, out of his love for us, rich in mercy, out of his fullness of grace, he has allowed us to be his children because Jesus Christ died in our place and that was the only possible way for us to be rescued. And we get to celebrate and worship him in response to that. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for the truth that every single one of us that's sitting in here right now, none of us deserves your grace, your favor, your mercy, and your rescue. Not one of us deserves that, God. And you did it anyway. God, let that gospel truth inform how we see the world so that we will pursue things of eternal value in light of what you've done for us. 
If that means that we give up some temporal pleasure, then so be it, God. Let us follow you in obedience to that in every area of our lives. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.